Father, we are humbled by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the gift of mercy and grace that you have poured out upon us undeservedly. I pray, our Father, that as we open your word this morning that we would recognize just what it cost you for us to be here today. So whatever it is, Lord God, that may be clouding our vision today, spiritually, would you wipe it away, take it out of the way, pave the way that we may have eyes to see and ears to hear and a soul to receive. And it's not for our glory, Lord God, but for yours alone, rooted in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. I read that Socrates was considered wise, not because he knew all the right answers, but because he knew how to ask the right questions. The right question at the right time, in the right way, in the right setting, can penetrate a soul. The right question brings us to that precarious point of having to face the truth, even when we don't want to admit it. Some years ago, there was a book called The Book of Questions written by Dr. Gregory Stock. It's a collection of those kinds of questions. And uh, you want to be uncomfortable? Want to engage in some severe self-examination? Want to engage in some conviction? Pick up this book and open any page. Pick any one of the 275 thought-provoking inquiries contained in that book and then get ready for a ride. Okay, let me give you a brief sampling of some of the questions there. Okay, you discover that your wonderful one-year-old child is, because of a mix-up at the hospital, not yours. Would you exchange the child to try to correct the mistake? There's movies made of that stuff. If you could use a voodoo doll to hurt anyone you chose... Would you? Not who, but would you? Your house containing everything you own catches fire. After saving your loved ones and pets, you have time to safely make a final dash into the home and save any one item. What would it be? While parking late at night. I know you can't help but answer those questions, right? (laughs) While parking late at night, you slightly scrape the side of a Porsche. You are certain no one else saw it happen. The damage is minor and would easily be covered by insurance. Would you leave a note? I mean, something like that one probably has happened to some of you. Here's a few more. If you found that a good friend of yours had AIDS, would you avoid him or her? What if your brother or sister had it. If you were at a friend's house for Thanksgiving dinner, I like this one, and you found a dead cockroach in the salad, (laughs) what would you do? (laughs) Now, we're not at a restaurant, mind you. You're at your relative's house. All right, here's, here's one, last one. If you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, 
What would you most regret not having told someone? And why haven't you told them yet? Does that one strike a vein? The right questions, they're powerful and pointed and personal and piercing. They're like arrows slicing a direct path into the deepest part of our being. And they force us to come to terms with the issues that they address. This morning, I want you to come to terms with an issue. It is without question the most important issue of your life. And I put it in the form of a question. If you had one chance to obtain eternal life, would you take it? If not, why not? Now you may be thinking to yourself, now that's a ridiculous question. Who wouldn't want eternal life? Who wouldn't take a chance at eternal life? Well, a savvy, young, financially set, high-powered leader once asked a very key question of Jesus. He said this. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's Mark 10, verse 17, and all the way down to 22. I want to read it to you out of the message. As he went out into the street, a man came running up, greeted him with great reverence and asked, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Jesus said, why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, I have from my youth kept them all. And Jesus looked him hard in the eye and loved him. And he said, there's one thing left. Go sell whatever you own. Give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth and come follow me. He asked the question, Jesus gave him the answer, or an answer, and the man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear, and he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things, and he was not about to let go. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said this. He said, do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? The disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing. But Jesus kept on. You can't imagine how difficult. I'd say it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for the rich man to get into God's kingdom. And that set the disciples back on their heels. Then who has any chance at all, they asked. And Jesus was blunt. And he said, no chance at all if you think you can pull it off by yourself. Every chance in the world if you let God do it. In other words, this man had the chance and he walked away from it. I wonder how many of you sitting here right now have had the chance to receive eternal life and have walked away from it. I ask that question because I know both biblically and statistically, that not every one of you here today has taken that opportunity. I also know that if you are listening to this message on CD, online, or through a radio broadcast at some point in time, that the percentages are even greater that you have sidestepped the chance. 
Well, friend, today you will have yet one more. And neither you nor I know if it will be the last one. So, what will you do with it? Before you can answer that question, I believe there is an extreme need to clear up some confusion. Like the rich young ruler, too many people are under the impression that eternal life is obtained by something, something you can do. And they walk away grieved because they cannot bring themselves to do what they think it would take to get eternal life. It would take a commitment to live a life of sinless perfection. But friends, the reality is eternal life is not rooted in what you do, but in who you know. That's what Jesus wanted to point out to the rich young ruler. That's what he wants to point out to all of us. What is eternal life? There's a question for you. Turn to John 17, if you would, in your Bibles. John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer that occurred on the night he was betrayed, actually. And Jesus begins in verse 1 by saying this. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Mark verse 3. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This single short but saturated verse contains the summary and essence of the whole Christian faith. One verse. If you ever wanted an answer to the question, what is eternal life? There it is. Verse 3 again. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Christ's words are rich with truth, and there is much to uncover in this verse. The first thing that I notice here is that eternal life rests on a remarkable disclosure. This is eternal life, Jesus says. Let's look at the subject here. Literally, the words that Jesus spoke read like this in the original language, and this is the life eternal. How much more direct can you get than that? I mean, it's difficult to imagine anything eternal in this life, isn't it? Can you think of anything? People die. Bodies waste away. Relationships change. Food goes bad. Clothes wear out. Gum loses its flavor. I don't care what the commercials say. <laughs> Nothing lasts forever. Except a stupid Facebook post. That never goes away. It's hard to grasp the idea of life that never runs out, that never grows old. But there is such a quality of life, says Jesus. The weird word eternal here refers to an illimitable duration, an indefinite period of time. It's the word which we get our English word eon from. 
Yet when the Bible talks about eternal life, it refers not just to a duration of time, but a quality of life far removed from what you and I are accustomed to. Life as we know it is surrounded by many enjoyable and satisfying experiences. Amen? No question. Yet it's undeniably colored by things like hate and sin and pain and suffering and indifference and frustration and insecurity. Life now is characterized more by the word death than it is by the word life. The idea of eternal life pictures something completely contrary to that. In John's gospel, in chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, listen up, what I'm about to say to you is true. It's emphatic. I say this, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. The subject, eternal life. The source, again, verse 2 here. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, that he may give eternal life. He may give. Who may give? Jesus may give. Who's the source of eternal life? According to this verse, it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of a virgin, became a human, who lived without sin, and willingly laid down his life on the cross as an offering for ours. Who was buried, rose from the grave on the third day, and he appeared to many. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. It is this Jesus who has the authority to give every man, woman, or child who entrust their lives to him the gift of eternal life and salvation. You've heard it so many times that you can say it in your sleep. But have you appropriated it effectively? 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 say this, and this is what God has testified, that he has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have God's son does not have life. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So we have to seriously wake up to the fact that Jesus Christ is the only source of eternal life. It is not our good works. It is not our long prayers. It's not even our Bible. Friends, the Bible is not the source of eternal life. It only points to the source of eternal life. The source is Jesus Christ. Don't be misled. You can read the Bible all you want for all of your life, but if it doesn't lead you to a personal relationship with Christ, you're going to have nothing at the end but a worn out book. That's Jesus' words. That's not just mine. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and he said to them, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Again, I like the way the message kind of puts it in everyday language. 
You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal light there, but you miss the forest for the trees because these scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right in front of you and you aren't willing to receive from me the life that you say that you want. The source of eternal life is Jesus. The writer of Hebrews stated it with perfect clarity and having been made perfect, he, meaning Jesus, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. That's Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And Jesus stated it plainly on so many occasions. John outlines seven of them, but I'll give you a couple. Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, eternal life is not just perpetual existence. It is primarily a person. Eternal life is Jesus Christ. If you want life, then it follows, you must have Jesus. Make sense? When it comes to life, he's the subject and he's the source, and he's also something else. He's our security. He's our security in John 17 again. That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. It says, did you know that every believer in Jesus Christ is a gift from God the Father to God the Son? Did you know that? If you are a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, you're not God's gift to the world. You're not. As much as we have to go out and proclaim the gospel and become carriers and ambassadors for Christ, you're not God's gift to the world first and foremost. You know who you are? You are God's gift to his son. Look at verse 6 in John 17. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Verse 9. I ask on their behalf, but I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me for they are yours. Okay, so we think, oh, okay, so those are the disciples. Well, look at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's us. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Talk about an assurance builder, my friends. If you are a believer, you are a gift from God the Father to Jesus, God the Son. And Jesus once said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. And all, he said, that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's security, my friends. That's eternal security. Are you being drawn to Christ? I talked with a man some years ago who told me that he knew he was being drawn to Christ. He openly admitted it to me. But for some reason, he hesitated to come and cross the line. 
I once spoke with a woman that evidenced all the signs of someone being drawn by Christ. That person openly admitted that her greatest desire was to have what true followers of Jesus all around her seemed to have. She wanted it so badly, yet at the time she could not bring herself to come to that point of trust. There was an intense struggle that was going on inside of her soul, and I knew that she would never be free until she finally said yes to Jesus. What about you? Are you hesitating? Listen, when you finally put your faith in Christ, you will then be free to really live your life. You will receive eternal life. And that's a guarantee. You have Christ's word on it. In John chapter 6 and verses 39 to 40, Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on, on the last day. Again, in John chapter 10, verse 27 and following, my sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one, no one, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. Because my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. See, eternal life is a secure promise for those who come to the source, Jesus. And this is the promise which he himself made to us, writes John the Apostle in 1 John 2.25. This is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. When the great Christian scientist, Sir Michael Faraday, was dying, some journalists questioned him about his speculations about life after death. And his reply was, was vigorous. He said, speculations? I know nothing about speculations. I'm resting on certainties. I know that my Redeemer lives, and because he lives, I shall live also. Eternal life is sure for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. You say, you, say, you mean that you can know that you have eternal life? Isn't that kind of arrogant to say that? No, it's not a matter of being arrogant. It's a matter of being scriptural. In 1 John chapter 5, in verse 13, it says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that you have eternal life? But you just hope so. See, when you truly place your faith in the source, Jesus, you can be assured. But there's more to assurance than just a guaranteed future, my friends. The substance of eternal life should affect us right now in this life. That substance is a present reality. Eternal life is not simply some abstract existence that will happen someday when we die and we go to heaven. No, no. Eternal life is operative now as well. It's a new quality of life. 
It affects the way that we act. It affects the way that we think. It affects the way that we speak and live every single day of our lives. And the big question is, is it affecting yours and mine? Colossians, Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 3, the first three verses. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. It just kind of piggybacks on what Eric preached. So Paul's saying to, to the Colossians, aim high, look ahead, and press on. Keep your mind rooted in where your life truly resides in Christ, in heaven. These verses speak of eternal life in the present. Eternal life, friends, is spiritual life in the present. It is Christ himself living in and through us. He must increase. We must decrease. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? In the life which I allow live in the flesh, I live by faith in the only Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, says Paul in Galatians 2.20. If Christ lives in you, our, your life will change. When a person receives Christ, seismic spiritual shifts occur in the tectonic plates of your soul. How do you like that? Because that's what it is. He comes in and he does a number of things. Upheaval. When God moves in, he does a shaking of what once was so that he can build a new mountain of what is yet to be. You see, God becomes real Christ becomes real. God's word becomes understandable and sin becomes unacceptable. You see, eternal life is a present reality through Christ in us. He's not simply going to manage the sin that's in our lives. Jesus is out to annihilate it. If we claim to have eternal life and yet live like the rest of the world, you know what? We're self-deceived. Eternal life is not just a present reality, but it's a privileged possession. Peter wrote about that in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you have to experience, if necessary, distress by various trials. But this present reality is operative if you go down through the rest of that passage. Peter's one who knows what he's talking about, right? Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about Peter's denial? Well, this is what he's writing after he turned and strengthened his brothers. After Satan had sifted him like wheat. After Christ restored him. He had a whole new outlook. 
eternal life was now a present reality in his life. So the big question is, if that is just a taste of what eternal life is all about, then how do you obtain it? That's the big question. Okay, I want that. How do I get it? Eternal life doesn't only rest on the remarkable disclosure of the substance, the security, and the source of eternal life, but it also comes with a slight requirement. Eternal life requires a relational decision. Look at John 17, 3 again. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, when it comes to eternal life, it doesn't matter what you know, but who you know. Here's where most people bail out on the gospel. It's okay to know all the facts, but please don't require me to make any decisions about those facts personally. To John 17 here, Jesus defined eternal life not in terms of a possible reward. You notice that? He doesn't define it in terms of a possible reward, but in terms of a personal relationship. A relationship that requires at least two important factors. Number one, an intimate knowledge of God, if you read the verse, and a personal trust in Christ. The word know in this text is the key thing here. I've talked to hundreds of people who claim that they know God, but yet they persist in denying Jesus. Is that even possible, biblically speaking? This may shock you a bit, but I'm going to make a couple of bold but very biblical statements. I don't want any hate mail, okay? There's enough of that going around on the internet. I actually talked... No, I won't go there. Here's a couple of bold statements. You cannot know God if you do not know Jesus. You cannot know God if you do not follow Jesus. Because that proves you don't know him. You do not believe in the true God if you do not believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, that is so provocative on so many levels in this day and age. But it's biblical according to John 17, 3 and others. In this context, the word know, although it includes the concept of intellectual knowledge, also implies a deep, intimate love relationship. This is the same word, as you know, used often in the Bible to beautifully express the intimacy of a one flesh relationship between a husband and a wife. Jesus said of his followers, look, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. It's the same word. I have an intimate relationship with them, a oneness. He also said of those who professed to imitate him and threw his name around like they were representing him but had no intimate and genuine relationship to him. In Matthew 7, he said, you people who think that you cast out demons in my name and perform miracles in my name, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. You see, to know God, or better yet, for God to know you, is to acknowledge intellectually 
his character and existence, but also to progressively pursue and prove a personal relationship with him by doing his will. That's what Matthew 7 says. Because the ones who know me, the ones that I know, they're the ones that do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, you don't do that to get saved. When you do that, it proves that you are. It includes love, first and foremost, reverence, honor, obedience, gratitude. Affection. See, it's not simply enough to know about God. The old saying goes, you can miss eternal life by a mere 18 inches. You know, the distance from the heart to the head. You can have heard about him all of your life, be raised in a Christian home. That does not translate into a personal relationship with him. Jesus said, if you love me, what? For those of you that know. You will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. What's the greatest commandment? Love God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two things. Man, if you don't love God and you don't love your neighbor, how can you say that you're a follower of Christ? 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. It's one of the greatest problems that we face in the church. We have church seats that are filled with people who have grown up in the church all of their lives, people who know all the spiritual sounding words and phrases, and that's about it. Their spiritual intelligence quotient is high. Spiritual IQ is high, but the heart condition is dangerously low. The sad fact is, is that when God measures our faith, as I've said many, many times before, he doesn't put a tape measure around our heads. Where does he put it around? Our hearts. You know how that goes, right? You know the old example. It's, it's almost cliche, but I just need to say it for those of you that are new and have never heard it before. One pastor writes about a, about a friend of his that was working with teenagers at a certain Christian camp in California, and they'd been working with this preteen kids who had been raised in the church all their life. Actually, all kinds of sec, you know, other churches were represented there. And maybe all these kids had been in the church their whole life. And on top of that, many of them attended private Christian schools. And so this guy decided he was going to cut through all the veneer and add a little reality to their very first session together. So he thought he would ask a down-to-earth question. So he began. He looks out the window. He says, let's loosen up a little bit. I'm going to ask you a question. You just raise your hand, answer the question, right? Nobody responded. They had heard it all these kids that were brought up in church. They knew the whole deal. So he glanced outside and he blurted out, what's small and gray, has four legs, climbs trees, has a big bushy tail, and hides nuts for the winter? No, not a word from anybody. Nothing. Few frowned, looked at each other, but no one responded. He asked it again, what's small and gray, has four legs, climbs trees, has a big bushy tail, and hides nuts for the winters? Again, no answer. Finally, 
One brave little girl in the back stuck her hand into the air and she said, all serious, she says, I think it's a squirrel, but I'm going to go ahead and say Jesus. <laughs> and it's a very old story, very old joke, but still, it's, it's still... Let's cut through the junk, shall we? We need to hear the truth about this stuff. Eternal life is not obtained by what we know about God, but by whether or not we know the only true God. That's it. And there's only one way to know the true God. To know Christ, whom he has sent. It says it right there in John 17, 3. This is eternal life. There is no relationship with God the Father without a relationship to God the Son. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Peter wrote in the introduction of his second letter, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the bridge to God the Father. The Jews recoiled at that. They claimed to know God. And they were his chosen offspring, yet they rejected Christ. On countless occasions, Jesus pointed out that if people did not accept him or believe his words, they had no part with God the Father, regardless of their ancestry, regardless of their religion, regardless of their confession. Just peruse a few of these verses in John's Gospel. John 14, 6 through 9, you know this. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I not been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You get that? That's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah, John chapter 8, verse 19 there's another one. So they were saying to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Skip down to verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, you know, <laughs> I would like to have been a fly on the wall in this conversation. <laughs> Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. But you're of your father, the devil. He's your father. Whoa, no wonder they killed him. That's exactly why they killed him. Because he was claiming to be God. Chapter 1, verse 14. You know this by heart, right? The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is that of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him, meaning Jesus. Jesus has explained God. Jesus is the human face of God. So basic stuff, right? Is it that basic? Could you share this with somebody? I'm giving you tools right now. Jesus is the human face 
of God. He has explained him. Here's a theological term for you. It's something that I do every single week when I prepare a message. The word explained in that text is where we get the word exegete. You know what I do when I prepare a message and I go to the original language and try to dive into the study of what the words say? I exegete the passage. What's John saying? Jesus has exegeted God the Father. He's explained it to us. In his life, he's the human face of God. John chapter 12, verse 45. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. And then, of course, the icing on the cake. John chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one and the same. No one can know God, follow him or hear his voice and simultaneously reject his son, Jesus Christ. It's absolutely, scripturally, biblically impossible. Jesus said unequivocally, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. Eternal life is an intimate relationship with God the Father through a personal reception of God the Son. John 13 and verse 20 makes it very clear. Again, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Eternal life, there it is. John 17, 3. If you had one chance to obtain eternal life, would you take it? Because you have the chance this morning. Jesus has made a remarkable disclosure to you through this word, which demands a relational decision. Eternal life is not obtained by what you do, but by whom you know. It's not a reward that's earned. It's a relationship that's embraced. A relationship with Christ based on total faith, complete trust, yours for him. It's not just a one-time act, but a lifelong pursuit through which we come to know the fullness of his love, the power of his life, the fellowship of his suffering, to learn to know the sound of his voice, enjoy the security of his hand, and experience the abundance of his grace. Yes, it's a one-time decision, but it doesn't end there. It follows through for the rest of your life. Why would anyone walk away? Yet people always do. They always do. And some of you will today, sadly enough. You have a choice. Eternal life or forever death. Forever death doesn't mean that you just cease to exist. You just turn to dust and float away. No, no, you don't just fade off into the sunset. Jesus warned that the alternative to eternal life with Christ is a continual state of spiritual death and separation from God in hell. Nobody likes to hear about that today or any day. They didn't like to hear about it in Jesus' day either. You know, the same word for eternal, as we have seen it connected with life in this this message today, is also used in reference to hell. You know what Jesus described hell as? 
Let's close your eyes and listen to Jesus' description. It's everlasting fire, a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. The lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone, a bottomless pit, outer darkness, fire unquenchable, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, furnace of fire, blackness of darkness, a place of no rest where the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. That's serious business, my friends. Here's something I learned this week. Approximately 151,600 people die every day. You know what that is in this country? That's more than 4.5 million people a month. Almost the entire city of Los Angeles. Every single month. Let's bring it down to home. 6,316 people die every hour. So, that means that in the time that you've been in this service, almost 9,500 people, half the city of Augusta, have entered one of two eternities. Eternal life with Christ in heaven or everlasting death in hell. And now I ask you a question. Is it really such a difficult decision? I'm going to end this with the example of two men who had very similar intellectual strengths yet very different perspectives and who made vastly different choices throughout the course of their lives. Both of them died just days apart of the same tragic illness. One of them was well-known in the world. The other, well-loved in our church. Christopher Hitchens and Michael Godding. At Michael's funeral service here in this pulpit, I shared these words. Just nine days prior to Mike's death, new atheism advocate Christopher Hitchens also died of esophageal cancer. He was not just an atheist, but a self-proclaimed anti-theist. He had spent almost his entire life trying to convince people that God did not exist and that people who relied upon God were imbeciles. It's interesting to me, however, that it is the fool in Scripture who is identified as the person who says in their heart, there is no God. Michael, on the other hand, spent nearly his entire life defending and propagating the good news that there is a God who loves us immeasurably was not happy with the separation that our sin caused between us and tore down that wall by planting himself in the womb of a virgin, being born as a man, humbling himself to serve us and sacrificing himself for us on the cross and then rising from the dead on the third day so that we may believe. 
that we can be reconciled with him and gain the gift of eternal life. That's what Michael taught. That's what Michael lived. Now, I don't know the destinies of these two men ultimately because God is God. But tell me, which of these two men, Michael Godding or Christopher Hitchens, in life contributed more to the hope of the world? Someone as well said, he who provides for this life but takes care, no care for the future is wise for the moment, but a fool forever. How much time have you taken to think about the Christ who is your only provision for eternal life, and not only for the future, but for today as well? You know, when we're young, we're too happy to think about Christ. We feel like we got all the time in the world. When we reach adulthood, we're too busy to think about Christ because we've got goals to pursue. And when we reach our prime, we're too anxious to think about following Christ because we've got too much to worry about. And when we reach retirement, we're too old to think about Christ. Old habits are hard to change. Old hearts are even harder. When we're dying, we're too ill to think about a relationship with Christ because we're weak and we're suffering and we feel alone. When you're dead, it'll be too late to think about receiving Christ because your chance will have gone by. And when we are in eternity, you'll have forever to think about Christ. And you'll be thinking, I could have, I should have, So think Christ now. Receive Christ now. There's no time like the present. For now is an acceptable time. Now is a day of salvation.